1 Corinthians 13 in your Bibles. Uh, quick confession and then an, an illustration. So um, I work on a spreadsheet with, um, with, the, with the administration of the church for the preaching calendar. And uh, on Friday, wrapped up this sermon for 1 Corinthians 13 on relational unity in the church. And uh, wrapped it up and went into the spreadsheet and promptly realized that I had this Sunday's sermon and next Sunday's sermon backwards in the calendar. So this Sunday works really well for, this Sunday's sermon works really well for next week's Sunday school lesson. Next week's sermon works really well for today. Um, so uh, I apologize for being backward. Um, this is not the first time I've made them. <laughs> It'll happen again. That's all I'm going to say. 1 Corinthians 13, though, is what we're talking about. It's a much better Mother's Day topic than justification anyway, uh, so we'll, but we'll, we'll enjoy it anyway. So, uh, uh, oh boy, how many years ago? Um, 1998, summer of 1998, I worked summer camp for Lifeway Christian Resources. It was a camp called Crosspoint. It was a sports camp for fourth graders through eighth graders. That was our market audience. Um, and uh, I was the scary worship leader uh, for the for the camp that summer, and also coached tennis. Uh, and our camp pastor was a 19 year old David Platt. For any of those who know who David Platt is, how long ago was that, right? So uh, he and I met and became good friends that summer for that for that summer, not any time otherwise. Um, and um, but just as you can imagine, just an awesome like you get to live in in a college dorm, a different one every week and we traveled all over the place. You're loving on kids, you're 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 leading worship. You David Platt, your preacher at nineteen, he was already awesome. You know, it was just it was just an incredible summer. And I I really thrived in that environment, thrived in my team, thrived doing camp. Um, and you know, so much so that for the next summer of ninety nine, I applied to be a camp director. So rather than uh, leading worship you actually do less as a director. It's really awesome. So instead of doing everything as the worship pastor and the tennis coach and the choir leader and the and the da 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 da, it was like we're just going to put you in charge, and uh, you just want to make sure everybody. It's middle management, right? It's just great. Like everybody's bending at the knees. Great. All right. Good job. Way to go with camp. So I, I was director of Camp Ninety Nine, and I and um, it's interesting if you go back and I think if you could if you could go back and look at the reviews and the feedback that the church, church leaders who came and the kids who came gave you about camp at the summer of 1999 that Rob's team and Rob and his team led, they would give you, they would give you glowing reviews. Like camp ran really, really well. I mean, it was really well. Not that we didn't have our mistakes, but if you want to just grade it honestly and objectively, their feedback would show, man, we had a really great experience at camp. Um, And then if you went back and read the reviews of my team reviewing their summer, they would say, you know, camp was good, but our team was terrible. In fact, that's exactly what they did say. So that when I was having my review with the leaders at Lifeway about my potential for directing in 2000, it was, well, Rob, we really just don't know. Because camp may have run very well, but as a team, you did not run very well. So there was unity in the function of doing camp. There was even unity in the doctrine that we were espousing. 
There was unity in the mission of camp, but there was not unity in the relationship of the team. So let me just say that really concisely. We were united functionally, but we were not united relationally. So generally speaking, the same could be true for the church in Corinth that we're going to read about today. This was a church that was highly focused on their gifts and their using those gifts in the church. This was a church that was very focused on doing church and less on being the church. This was a group of people who were focused on having a great experience more so than they were being a great people. And Paul's way of addressing this was to validate their desire for church to be done right through their gifts. And if you read up through 1 Corinthians 10, 11, 12, etc., you'll see that. But he wanted to make that doing church secondary to being a great church by loving each other. So Paul's point in this text that we're going to look at today is that it's one very important thing for a church to be united functionally, and it's one very important thing for a church to be united doctrinally, but the most important thing is for the church to be united relationally in love. It is the greatest thing. In fact, if you look at the very end of chapter 12, Paul says, the desire of the greater gifts, I will show you an even better way than the gifts. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. Stand with me, if you will. We'll read it together, the whole chapter. Love. Paul says, If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this is the, if there's a lot of, Paul's saying a lot. He's saying a lot in this text. But if there's one thing that I think he's really trying to say, he is trying to say that relational unity in the church, love in the church is greater than functional unity in the church. That being the church 
Having the love in the members of the church is more important than whether a church is executing, than it's operating. And I'm going to show you why that is the case from the text. The first thing I want to show you, there's three reasons, and the first is this, that functional unity in the church. If, if you just are trying to operate church, that, there's a lot of danger if that's the greatest good. And I want to show you what those dangers are. Look at verse 1. Paul says that an emphasis on function over love has the potential to divide the church rather than bless the church. Look at verse 1. He says, If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So what Paul is saying here is that some gifts in the church, if they are exercised without love, if there's not love as the underlying motive for the exercise of a spiritual gift, it can actually divide the church even if its intent and its hope is to bless the church. And I get this from the metaphor that Paul uses, noisy gong or clanging cymbal. So here's, here's what this means. So I, back in the 2000. Uh, Holly and I are married in 2000. So in 2001, I moved to a church in South Florida, Boynton Beach, Florida, down on the West Coast. The Lord called me to the Paris Dice, and I was happy to go. And so we, we went down there. And um, so I was the student minister in a small church of about 300. So when you're the student minister of the 300, you're the associate minister, which means you do everything the pastor doesn't want to do, um, which is tr- very true. And so I did. I did a lot, a lot of things. And I don't even remember why I was on stage for this particular moment of worship that we were having in the on this particular Sunday morning, whether I was preaching or leading worship or just singing or doing, you know, whatever I was doing. Um, but, but people let me on stage back then more than Weston does here. So I was on stage and I, and I was doing this, this thing and, all, and we were starting this song and, and all of a sudden over here on the left-hand side, um, a, 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 an elderly uh, black woman in her you know, 60s or 70s pulled out from her purse a tambourine. And she started... Psh, in the song. Now, this was a first Baptist church of Boynton Beach. And we, I don't know how many, you know, back in the, you know, back in 2000. And she was, and for like 20 seconds, it was awesome because, I mean, it fit with the song and it was like, she, did she know? Did she and Keith pray before the worship to bring out the tambourine and make worship? And then after like three minutes, it's like, okay, you can put that thing away now. You know, it's just like you, it's, it's really started to become more distracting than, than helpful. And then, you know, on the third song in a row, it's now like somebody needs to go take that tambourine out of her hand. Right. That's what's kind of going through the room. And so then on the third Sunday in a row, it's, it's not just annoying, it's divisive. Like, what are you going to do, Pastor? to get the tambourine out of so-and-so's hand, who we love, you know, we love her. What are we we're going to do? So Paul wasn't referencing gongs and cymbals in that way, though I think that illustration is helpful to agree. He means it actually much, much worse. So if you were in Corinth back in this day, you would know that the streets... As you'd walk through the streets, you would hear noisy gongs. You would hear clashing of cymbals uh, going on all the time because they were a feature of pagan idol worship. It's going on all the time. 
So a gong was a piece of copper and a cymbal was this single tone instrument as well. And they would both be used by different mystery religions in the, uh, in, in the city of Corinth. And they would, they would do it to invoke their God or to drive away demons or rouse up the crowd in worship, you know. There was no melody. There was no harmony. It was just this boom, 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 you know, this monotone beating and it caused just as much offense in the community as a dog you know, barking on and on and on incessantly in your, in your neighborhood. Do you see what Paul's doing here? Paul says, equally offensive are the people who use the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues without love. It's a spiritual gift. It's a gift of the Spirit that the Spirit has given this person or these people to speak in tongues. But if they do it, if they're committed to practicing this gift without any love for the people that they're in the room speaking to, speaking to, they may as well be performing an act of idol worship in the church. So it doesn't matter whether the tongues are human languages or some prayer language or language of heaven. If there's no love in it, that spiritual gift, that gift of God, actually divides the church rather than blessing the church. So there, it can be dangerous to be more, to be focused on function over love in the church can introduce these kinds of things. Verse 2, some gifts without love rob us of our significance even as they promise to bolster it. Look at verse 2. Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. I'm, I'm nothing. If, if, if there's a gift like prophecy and there's a gift like knowledge that, that can give you a sense of importance, a sense of, I have a sense of, of identity, and you practice it in the church, void of the relationship, void of love for the people whom you are proclaiming the truth to, you do it, you are, and nothing actually robs you of the significance that you're after. I think a great illustration of this is 1 Corinthians 8. Turn back in your, in your Bibles, uh, please, to 1 Corinthians 8. And you can, you can see this at work. Um, maybe this is tying a little bit better into Sunday school after all. So you can see this at work in, in the Corinthian church as it's going on. Paul says in verse 1, Now about this food sacrifice to idols that you guys are divided over, we, all, we know that, look, look at this, we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but what? Love builds up. So you have people in the church who have this gift or understanding of knowledge specifically about whether or not it is okay to eat meat in a meal that's been, the meat, the animal's been sacrificed in an idol temple. It's been processed. It's been used in an act of worship. Then it gets sold to market to fund the the, the church, the the idol temple. Is it okay for a Christian to eat that? And Paul says, we know that some people understand it's totally okay to do that, that the Lord's made it's fine. But there are others who don't have that gift. Look at verse 2. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Okay, here's the nitty-gritty, verse 4. So about these eating food, 
We know that an idol is nothing in this world and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one. All things are from Him. We exist for Him. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through Him and we exist through Him. We get that knowledge. There are some of us who understand this to be true. Verse 7, however, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been used so, this is so, so pastoral. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. There's some people who don't have the knowledge. Some people do. Some people don't. If you are worried about function over relationship in this debate, you will say, well, I don't care what you think. I know what is true, and that's what we're going to do. And Paul says, no, 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 no. He says, there's some people who don't have that knowledge. What do we do? What do we do? Verse 8, food's not going to bring us close to God. We're not worse off if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. You are to treat your knowledge and live according to your knowledge according to how someone that you love might perceive it. You're to put the relationship, the love for your brother and sister who doesn't have the same knowledge as you, you're to put, you're to live off that love, not off that knowledge. The significance of that person is found in their love for the brother and sister in the church, not in what they No. Isn't that incredible that Paul would say in verse 10, if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in the idol temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat? And so the weak person, that brother and sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. So don't sin against them like this. Love them first. Love is more important than the gift of knowledge. Verse 3, Paul says that there are some gifts that we can practice without love. And if we do, it gives the appearance of the love of God, but it's really all about us. Look at verse 3, Paul says, If I give away all my possessions and I give over my body in order to boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Turn back in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 18. You can see this at work. Luke 18, verse 9. This is the Lord. Oh, Luke, not Acts. Hello. There we go. Luke 18. I have like index tabs and I still couldn't get to the right place. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus uh, telling a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other people. (laughs) This is Acts 15. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Jesus said, I tell you, this one, the latter, went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the exact same point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 13.3? If I give away all my possessions, give over my body in order to boast, but I don't love, I give the appearance of godliness, but really I'm really all about self-righteousness. So self-righteousness in the church causes division. It causes division. Find it. So all, all these things that Paul's done, one, two, and three, all these examples and illustrations, Paul's point is that a church can technically function in unity, but if you remove love from the equation, that unity breaks down into division, it breaks down into chaos, and you have to get a letter from Paul called First and Second Corinthians. And it's not pretty. So when we talk about church unity, what we want to make sure that we're doing first and foremost is relational unity. Are we loving each other? Number two, another reason that this is true about functional unity versus love unity, relational unity, is because doing church according to our gifts and talents is very temporary. It's very temporary. Skip down to verse 8. Paul says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they're going to come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it comes to an end. We know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, this partial will all come to an end. Verse 12, we now see only as a reflection in the mirror, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know whatever I know, I know it's in part, but then when Jesus comes, I'm going to be, it's fully known. So the, the doing of church according to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, is a temporary exercise. So I don't know if, I hope this is helpful. This is the way I was thinking about it on Thursday, Thursday and Friday. I hope this is a helpful way to think about it. So uh, when it comes to spending money, I feel like I am constantly choosing between spending more money on something that is presumably of higher quality and therefore more likely to last a long time, right? Or spending less money on something that is presumably of lesser quality and therefore more likely to last like into the weekend and not much further, right? Okay, so you, you, can you resonate with that tension? Like I've got, this is my budget, this is the real, like what do I do? I don't do anything at all. It's just, it's constant. Like I just, it's constant. I hate being old. Okay. Now, like, that's not true for everything because I do need to spend money on very inexpensive things that don't last, even if it's only just to manage like cash flow, right? But I am finding, 46, I am finding more and more that spending money on fewer things that last longer is better in the long run than spending money on more things that don't last very long. It's not 100%. That's just kind of like, that's, that's more often true than not, okay? That is the point that Paul is making. Either when we die or when the Lord returns and ushers in a new heaven and a new earth, the spiritual gifts that we want to practice in the church today will become irrelevant, but love will never be irrelevant. Love is the most expensive, most valuable thing. It is the thing that lasts 
forever. And Paul is saying, give your energy to that. You're always going to have the opportunity to love each other. You are not going to have the opportunity to worship according to a temporary spiritual gift that helps you while you are pilgrims along the way. If you want to make something really important, don't make how you do church and the spirit more important than that you be the church loving each other. Make that the most important. Be less concerned with how you do church, more concerned about loving each other because the gifts are temporary, but love is forever. It's forever. Last, the third reason why relational unity is more important than functional unity is that a church without love has zero good news for this world. Zero. Look at verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful, not arrogant, not rude, not self-seeking, not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. (laughs) Love is not hangry. It's just like that's all those are all that I do. I'm all those things when I am hungry and tired. Like it's just unbelievable, wasn't it? Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Notice in verse four and five how many of these are in the negative. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. What this shows me and what this shows you and I is that Paul is not just writing this list abstractly. The Corinthians, just read the letter. Read the next letter. The Corinthians were impatient. They were unkind. They were filled with jealousy. They were filled with puffing themselves up in their own glory. They insisted on their own way. They were cantankerous, resentful people, and they rejoiced when other people did wrong other than rejoicing when they were doing right. Now, who would easily believe a single thing that the church in Corinth purported to believe if they were behaving like that with each other? What onlooker or visitor that Sunday would see that kind of behavior and go, well, there's a lot of good news here. I think I want to be a part of this. Man, this service is running really well. The sound works. The screens work. The lyrics were on the screen on time. Guys, am I right in the back? Yeah, like we're, this thing, there was a greeter. There, my kids were well provided for. They treat each other like junk. I think I want to be a part of this. It doesn't happen. But you know what does happen? These people are patient and kind with each other. They tolerate all kinds of weirdness about each other. There's nobody at the front door when I came in here, but who cares? Look how nice and kind and sweet they are. Look, it's, look at this. Look at this. I've been here three times. Look at this fellowship. I want to be a part of this. It doesn't matter if there was nobody in the parking lot waving at me. There's no good news in a church that's running really well, but is full of people who don't like each other. There's a ton of good news for the world with people who really love each other and maybe don't have their act together every Sunday. There's very good news. There's very good news in a church 
where people bear up with everything that goes on in a church. If you are weak, you are loved. If you are clumsy, you are loved. And not just for a few Sundays, but every Sunday and all the days in between all the Sundays because love endures all things. Not some things, not most things, not some of the time or most time. Love endures all the things. Love says, I love these people and we're sinners receiving mercy together. A functional church says, we've got a mission to accomplish and we better get it right. It's a very different tone. Without love, we say, I need to help these people, and if they would only do X, then I could do something. Love says, I love these people, and we're always, we're together, we're in it, getting mercy and grace from the Lord together. Bonhoeffer, boy, if you want to, if you want to take a deep dive into this idea, read Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. He talks about our, our tendency to, so okay, we're talking about love now, right? We got, we're just going to love each other. And you can go straight down you know, to utopia. And you can just think, man, it's always going to be awesome. Can you believe the word that Pastor Rob brought this morning for 1 Corinthians 13? We're just going to be great and it's going to be awesome. And, the, and you're going to go 10 minutes out the road and you're going to have a reason to hate somebody in your van. Like, I mean, it's, it's not going to take that long. Um, and so you, but you, we can, <laughs> Ralph, Ralph's got one person in his car. <laughs> Uh, you'll guess right. You, I don't know what side of the equation you're on and that thought in your mind, Ralph, but okay. Uh, you, might, you might want to switch seats real quick. Uh, so but you, you can go there and like, you, just, you can completely idolize, like it's just going to be awesome. It's going to be the Lego movie. It's going to be wonderful, right? And Bonhoeffer says, don't idolize what 1 Corinthians 13 looks like in the church. Because if you love that wish, if you love that dream of the community more than the actual people who make up the community, you will actually destroy the community. That's incredible. That's how broken and twisted that's how much we need Jesus. We cannot glamorize in what love in the church really looks like. Because if you do, you're going to threaten the very love that we want to have in this church. Love is work. It is work. Was it? Was it? I, can't, I think it was Piper who said this. He's like, "How do you know that you love your wife?" He's like, "Well, because I stayed." The covenant is to say, "I'm going to stay." Okay. How do you? Because I stayed. That's how you know. How do you know that you have love in the church? Because when the opportunity for division comes, we see our way through it. We do Acts 15 and we stay. We love. So. There you have it. What does a church that is focused on being a love church, what does it look like? Well, it is patient with one another. They are kind. English word kind, kin, family. It doesn't mean nice like southern nice. It means kind like family kind. Puts a different twist on it, doesn't it? It does not envy. Some of you have way better lives than others. Now, today, if it's, life's not as awesome as you think it should be and you really are tempted to envy the other person, no, 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 you're happy for them and they are serving you in that moment. There's no envy. There's no boasting. 
there's no, I'm better than you. No, we all proclaim Christ here. We boast in the Lord. Therefore, we're not arrogant. It's not about our righteousness. It's not about our abilities or our gifts. It's about the gospel. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. That's Paul's describing church family. He's describing a church family who is holding up the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the most important thing in the whole world, in the whole universe, and boasting in that and claiming that and proclaiming that. And when you do that, when that's all, that's mo- that's all that matters, when that's all that matters, the, and you see the love that God has for you and for everyone else around you, you will love them more and more the same way. It's a gospel-centered church. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is. It's a gospel-centered church. So bathe yourself in the love of Christ for the church. Just think about... Just think about how much Jesus loved his church. And think about it all the time. It's his church. It's not ours. It's his. And he loves He loves us. He loves his church. He loves his bride. He's not going anywhere. And we should either. We should stick with the church. Stay with the church. And be a church that loves more than it does. We're going to do some awesome stuff. We're doing some awesome stuff. And sometimes we do it really well, and sometimes we don't do it really well. But what really matters is that we love each other as we do. That's what matters. Let's pray together. Father, we got to do. We have a mission. We have a mission, a great commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have a great mission. And the way that this congregation will go about doing it will will be dynamic. It will fluctuate and change as we, as we try and go about doing the mission. But if we operate according to the spiritual gifts and we believe all the right truths and, and, we, and we try and execute excellently with excellence and we're all just embittered and don't love each other, who cares? There's no influence in the culture from a church that doesn't love each other. It doesn't matter how smart we are, gifted we are, or doctrinally correct that we are. It won't matter. In fact, the relationship between doctrinal conviction and relational love are tied together. If we really believed our doctrine, we would really love each other. So we ask that as we profess and believe the gospel, you would lead us to love each other. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.